You have received a magnificent invitation written in golden ink. You are invited to relax to this chapter-by-chapter chapter calm summary of The Lord of the Rings. You can listen, ignore, or a little of both. For the next few minutes, the only thing you have to worry about is Chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring. You hear the familiar tap at your study window, and you're ready to stay up late into the night, consuming plenty of tea and biscuits, talking about a great adventure to come. So, welcome to Chapter 2, Shadow of the Past. In this chapter, Gandalf is going to outline the history of the Ring and how it came to Frodo. As a quick heads up, it's very exposition-heavy. Plus, Gandalf will be dropping wisdom and affirmation bombs all over the place, and of course, I can't bring myself to glaze over those. I've done my best to trim things down while giving you room to breathe, but just know that today's episode is going to have a lot more length and meat to think over than will be hopefully typical. So there are two ways to approach this chapter. Both are equally okay. If you're not interested in getting knee-deep in ring lore, just sit back, let it wash over you, and know that we're getting ready to follow a small but worthy hero into a great quest. On the other hand, if you're interested in really losing yourself in this chapter, you'll first need to ponder what the ring is in your life. Boiled down, the ring is a mechanism that tempts everyone with great power, then uses that desire to destroy them. But when do everyday people like you and I do something as grandiose as desiring power? Instead, we need to think in terms of control. So if you're human, and I'm just going to assume you are because you're here listening to this podcast, chances are that you'll have at least one thing following you around that makes you think, "Ah, if I could just deal with this somehow, everything would be so much better. So it's differently for all of us. For many, it's more money to take care of bills. For others, there's approval from friends, success at work, or physical or mental health. Still others may just long to feel loved, respected, or safe. Everyone has that one vulnerability that brings out their inner, frightened hobbit, and the desire to keep that manageable fierce. So just for a quick moment, and don't delve too deep, I'd like you to sit with this thought, and remember that, as trite as it sounds, it's part of what makes you feel. Now, you can let it pass, and when Frodo's relationship to the ring comes up again, you'll be more prepared to relate. Okay, so in this chapter, we'll be delving into the idea problems. How should we begin to approach them? What qualities does a person need to overcome them? And what do we do when a problem is a person? At the open of this chapter, we find ourselves in the Shire in early April, and the fields begin to seem a bit more green. The sky is clearing to a light but steady rain after a heavy downpour which means that the usual pathways around Hopton are turning into a thick mud. Still, there are these tiny white and pale yellow flowers springing up everywhere in new green grass. The days are cool, and the nights are cold. The sort of weather that gets you thinking of planting a vegetable garden, but still makes you want to spend your afternoons lounging 
in the firelit home that kept you warm throughout the winter. Sixteen years have passed since the last chapter. Since then, the story of Bilbo has grown. Most hobbits assume that he's just run off and died somewhere, and think Gandalf is somehow to blame. We learn that these rumors will become a legend, and in a few generations, hobbits will be telling each other the tale of Mad Baggins, who disappears with a flash and reappears with riches. Meanwhile, Frodo has settled into his role as the Baggins of Bag End, though the hobbits find him just as odd as his uncle. He goes on giving joint birthday parties for himself and Bilbo, and goes hiking all over the Shire with his good friends Barry and Pippin. He seems restless, and his caring friends watch him anxiously, worried that he'll suddenly decide to slip off to follow Bilbo. So just when everything seems to have died down, Gandalf unexpectedly shows up after a nine-year absence, tapping on the study window at Bag End. Frodo could have no idea that this was all set in motion ten months ago, when the creature Gollum was captured by a very kingly ranger friend he hasn't yet met. After just six days of questioning him, Gandalf takes off for the Shire, crossing the map at speed to arrive unlooked for on this beautiful rain-washed April evening. Two friends stay up late and wake up the next morning for breakfast and more conversation. And now, I have a question for you. Have you ever had the pleasure of cooking yourself a really big breakfast? There's nothing like that feeling of just having fully enjoyed some of the most soul-comforting food. You can linger at the table as long as you like, sipping at the last year drink as you watch the sun break through the late afternoon rain. You'll be stuck inside all day, and all that's on your schedule is making tea having a long conversation with a good friend. Frodo sits with Gandalf in this post-breakfast quiet, watching the wizard blow smoke rings. There's a little fire going, and the cool green smell of fresh spring air, and the wet light drizzle is coming in the window with a soft breeze. The trees are just beginning to bud, and the sounds of Sam's spring yard work are coming in the window. The whole room smells like fresh bread, tobacco, wood smoke, with a hint of cut grass. But eventually, Frodo's curiosity gets the better of him, and he breaks this peaceful moment to prod the wizard to continue telling him about his ring left to him by Bilbo. We learn that long ago, the elves learned to craft rings of power. These rings are dangerous for mortals to possess, and subject to rule by the Dark Lord Sauron. Gandalf describes his years of watching this particular ring, unbeknownst to Bilbo, beginning to take possession of the quirky old hobbit. It's here that Frodo mentions advice from Bilbo's last letter, which is just so them. They're quietly staying in touch, and although these letters are proof against rumors, that Bilbo is still alive, Frodo prefers to keep them quiet and honor Bilbo's wishes. Gandalf goes on to describe much of his comings and goings to Frodo, 
He even confides in him his hesitance to consult Saruman the White, who is basically his Middle-earth wizard boss. Of everyone who's anyone, Gandalf seems to be the only person who cares about hobbits. He says, quote, Among the wise, I am the only one that goes in for hobbit lore. An obscure branch of knowledge, but full of surprises. Soft as butter they can be, and yet sometimes as tough as old tree roots. I think it likely that some would resist the rings far longer than most of the wise would believe. Aha! Already we have our first clue to what makes a person resilient to the influence of the ring. So, soft as butter, they point toward a person who is flexible, gentle, maybe in touch with their emotions. Tough as old tree roots could be someone who is stable, content, comfortable in their own skin, even stubborn. But listen to the qualities he doesn't mention. They're all the ones that we seem to love ascribing to people who have overcome great problems. Bravery, persistence, cleverness, purity of heart. Gandalf doesn't put any of those at the top of the list for what it makes to make a resilient ring bearer. In a roundabout way, Gandalf is telling Frodo, and us, that it's okay to be frightened and imperfect. You, the person you are right now, are capable of confronting your biggest obstacles. The thing that makes you feel the most vulnerable, as long as you stay in touch with your humanity and yourself. By the way, friends, buckle in because Gandalf is just getting started with these great feeling wisdom bombs. I hope it is something that you get a lot out of. But first, Gandalf takes a pause to blow more smoke rings. The breeze has shifted and the sun is warming the beautiful spring day outside. Standing up, Gandalf tells Frodo it's time for a final test. He draws the curtains, making the room dark and cool, except for the warmth coming from the fire on the hearth. He asks for the ring, and Frodo reluctantly hands it over. With a sudden movement, he tosses it into the fireplace. Swatting aside Frodo's protests, he keeps the ring in the fire for a few moments. Then fishing it out with tongs, he hands it back to Frodo, who sees fine, fiery lines tracing words in a strange language around the band. So just take a second and imagine what Gandalf must feel in this moment. He's proved right. Against all odds and despite Saruman's dismissiveness, the Hobbit's ring is THE ring. He's gone through all kinds of hardships for years to prove it, but now it means his innocent little friend is going to be put through horrible trials. On top of everything, he's not going to be able to do much more than watch and talk him through it. All feelings aside, he begins filling Frodo in. This ring isn't just any ring of power. It's the Dark Lord Sauron's one ring of power that will allow his world domination. So, for some quick backstory to the backstory, the ring was forged about 4,800 years before this conversation and about 2,800 years before Gandalf even arrives on the shores of Middle-earth. The poem around the band is written in black speech, 
which is the official language of Mordor, which is so literally unspeakably evil that Gandalf doesn't dare repeat it even in broad daylight in the Shire. Later in Rivendell he will, and for a moment it actually blots out the sun and causes pain to all the elves in earshot. Not that I know the first thing about it, but that has to qualify as pretty metal, right? Okay, sorry about that detour. Anyway, about 3,000 years ago, Sauron lost this ring to his great weakening. If he reclaims the ring, he will finally be able to overcome the splintered forces of good in the world and immediately subjugate the hidden three elven rings of power. Now, in the face of one of the darkest moments, we get the Gandalf Wisdom Nugget to end all Gandalf Wisdom Nuggets. Frodo, understandably, is feeling quite small, and like the bottom has dropped out of his life. The day before, his biggest worry was missing Bilbo and the other Shire Hobbits thinking that he was strange. Today, he's learned that there's this incomprehensibly large and evil power with loads of resources and an implacable will stretching back millennia, and he, Frodo Baggins, has the one thing it's looking for. From the book, quote, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So, I am one of those people who sort of tends towards anxiety and depression, like a lot of other people out there. And this quote has been really meaningful for me, and I'm really excited to tell you why. So, I've noticed that for most of us, when upsetting things happen in our lives, our first instinct seems to be to turn inward and create all these inner narratives that are sometimes unrealistic and usually self-deprecating. We circle around to all the same questions over and over. Why is this happening to me? Why did that person act in that way? Why didn't I do this one thing that might have prevented this? Is it my fault? Do I deserve this? Gandalf's approach is so helpful to those of us that tend to go down this anxiety path. Whatever happens, he affirms that you're right. It feels awful, and it's not fair that it happens to you. But no matter what your brain wants to dwell on, your only job is to figure out that small list of what you can do with the time and resources that you have. Let that list anchor you in reality when the worry spiral threatens to come back. There's a strange peace that comes when you give yourself the permission to just feel upset about something without your brain jumping in and helping by adding all of those anxious little side narratives. Of course, I'm not going to claim that this is a fix, but it definitely helps. Okay, so we're going to jump back into the story here, and I really hope you're ready for some Gondorian political history. But first, have you ever had one of those conversations that was so intense, so intimate, where time seems to stop and the world may as well be contained in your one little room. That's us, right now, in the breakfast room at Bag End. Frodo leaning over a cup of tea, Gandalf seated near the fire with his long legs stretched out, pipe now forgotten on the table to his side. Frodo still wants to know why this job has been left to him, 
And Gandalf obliges. After the battle to cut the ring from Sauron's hand nearly 3,000 years previous, Isildur, the new king of Gondor, took the ring. On his way back home, his army was ambushed and nearly everyone was killed, including him and his three eldest sons. I wonder, this has got to feel strange for Frodo. Even without all the sinister magic, it would be like finding out the painting your grandma found at a yard sale was a long-lost Da Vinci. By the way, this ambush was a political disaster for the humans in Middle-earth at the time. Isildur was king of both Gondor and Arnor, the southern and northern kingdoms of men, and then after his death the kingdoms were splintered and did not reunite until King Elessar. So about 2400 years after what became known as the Disaster of the Gladden Fields, or the death of Isildur and his sons, the world is enjoying a four century long period called the Watchful Peace. But knowing what we do about the connection between Sauron and the Ring, it's probably little coincidence that just a few years after he establishes himself back in Middle-earth under the name of the Necromancer, the ring just happens to be found by two hobbits fishing by the riverbank. During this time, an early splinter group of hobbits lived on the banks of the Great River Anduin, far east of the Shire. They too lived in underground holes, though these were nearby the rushes and the river they padded through the mud to fish for food. We meet a hobbit named Smeagol and his friend Deagol, and the two go out fishing in a quaint scene we could see any of our current day brandy books were playing. A great fish catches Deagol's hook, and he's dragged out of the little boat. He grabs at something glittering in the river bottom and swims back to the riverbank with a beautiful golden ring. Smeagol sees this and demands the prize as a present. It's his birthday, after all. When Deagol doesn't comply, the little hobbit murders his friend in cold blood. When Smeagol returns home, he discovers that the ring makes him invisible and immediately sets about using his new trick to learn secrets and hurt people. We know that the ring gives power according to the stature, or desire, of the bearer. In Gollum's case, his small heart cared only to feel strong through making others weak. Eventually, this prompts his grandmother to kick him out of their hole, and the now homeless hobbit sets out into the world with only his newfound guttural self-talk and the ring for company. Moved by a fear of the sun and desire to uncover great secrets, Gollum warms his way into the heart of the Misty Mountains. This is the perfect hiding place for five centuries, five hundred years, until it slips away from Gollum, just in time, to be picked up by a lost Bilbo wandering blindly in the dark during his adventure. So the ring has slipped off of this wretched creature Gollum just in time to be picked up by somebody who could take it back out into the world where it could do more damage. So Frodo asks the obvious question. If the ring was so powerful, why didn't it choose a more probable bearer? Why not an orc? Gandalf has clearly thought a lot about this coincidence that he calls, quote, the strangest event in the whole history of the ring. 
but he doesn't give Frodo a straight answer. He tells the Hobbit, quote, Behind that, there was something else at work, beyond any design of the Ringmaker. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring, and not by its maker, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Gandalf is plainly referencing the greater powers behind the creation of Middle-earth, ones that are even referenced periodically in this text and extensively in the Silmarillion. And what's more, without going deep into that history, he has personally met a lot of them. So what's the deal here? Why not give Frodo more of this insight? Gandalf has already chalked up a pretty decent info dump so far that you and I are muddling through. So why doesn't he add some insider info about the good side that Frodo has found himself on? Wouldn't that be more encouraging to him? So I've thought about this a lot, and I'm glad he didn't mention it to Frodo. If Gandalf started in with a, have you heard the good news of the Valar speech, in this moment, it just would not be genuine. He knows his friend and what he's able to connect with especially in this particular moment of crisis. Instead, Gandalf chooses to phrase this thought more generally, but talk about the feelings truly going on in his heart, knowing that that would be more authentic to their friendship and something that Frodo could digest in this moment. So, now we know everything we need to about Gollum and the Ring, but at the time, Gandalf still needed to know more. He questioned Gollum, and he learned that after Bilbo's departure, he left his mountain cave to deliver news of the ring, and worse, the name of Baggins and the Shire to Mordor. Frodo is horror-struck. Before we go on, I want to sidestep momentarily to really think about Gollum. This text has spent so much time on him. What have we learned? He's greedy, deceitful self-serving, and seems to subsist on revenge and hatred alone. He preys on things smaller than him, and he speaks in snarls. He's a spy, thief, and murderer. There's even this horrifying tidbit Gandalf mentions to Frodo about Gollum's time in Mirkwood. This did not make it into the movie, by the way. He says, quote, The wood was full of the rumor of him. Dreadful tales, even among beasts and birds. The woodman said that there was some new terror abroad, a ghost that drank blood. It climbed trees to find nests, it crept into holes to find the young, it slipped through windows to find cradles. And all this is beside the fact that he sells Frodo out to Sauron. So Gollum makes me think, have you ever known... Or known of a truly wretched person. Maybe they're the type that takes delight in being cruel, or the type that constantly looks for the next opportunity to edify themselves at the expense of others. Gollum was like every bad person you can think of turned up to 11, the lowest, meanest form of life you can imagine. And yet, Gandalf says he thinks Gollum's story is a sad one. He pities him and seems to want us and Frodo to feel the same way. What's going on here? So let's start here. 
While Smeagol may not have started off as a particularly stellar person, he was still haunted by Deagle's murder. He likely would have never done anything so severe if the ring hadn't shown up. He could have remained a hobbit, if unlikable one, looking at you, Ted Standy Man, for the rest of his life. And when Gandalf speaks of Colin's longing for the ring, it almost seems like he's describing an addict. He says, quote, The thing was eating up his mind, of course, and the torment had become almost unbearable. He hates everything but the ring most of all. Gandalf adds that he hated and loved the ring as he hated and loved himself. So alongside our picture of the evil, greedy golem who covets the ring, we need to hold the damaged, self-loathing Smeagol. His entire person is almost completely taken over by the ring. Frodo still can't feel anything but anger towards Gollum or Smeagol or whoever he is. In a gentle attempt to make it obvious that Frodo and Bilbo aren't that different from him, Gandalf says, it might have happened to others, even to some hobbits that I have known. Frodo still doesn't get it, but Gandalf tells him that despite everything, Gollum was not wholly ruined. Did you think that was the last of Gandalf's wisdom? Because he's got more incoming. Now I'm going to read the ensuing exchange between Gandalf and Frodo about pity and mercy. I think it's perfect, and that's probably why it made it nearly verbatim into the movies. Here we go. What a pity that Bilbo did not stab the vile creature when he had a chance pity. It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. And he's been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. I'm sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have let him live on after all these horrible deeds? Now, at any rate, he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? And do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gandalf can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it, and he is bound up with the fate of the ring. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before the end, and when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not the least." But pity and mercy sound great, until we're frightened or upset. They're words that we like to throw around a lot, but really what they mean is doing the emotional, heavy lifting of looking past the golems in our lives to see their inner Smeagols. So it's hard, and probably feels impossible. 
And yet Gandalf seems to think that trying to find the humanity and those that have acted like monsters is part of the antidote towards the ring or that desperate, destructive desire for control in our lives. Practicing this particular strength may just help us let go of our own fears. So Gandalf has one more pearl of wisdom left up his sleeve for us to chew on. At this point, the two have started getting a little snippy with each other, which is kind of funny to read. Frodo is alternating between grilling and interrupting Gandalf, and is beginning to get on the wizard's nerves. Finally, Frodo asks why he was chosen as a ring bearer, and Gandalf comes back with this little saucy bit. He says, You may be sure it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate. But you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. And with that, it all comes back to the question of what qualities we need to overcome our problems. So it's wild when you think about it. This whole time I've been going on and on about Gandalf's brilliant insights in this particular situation. And yet at the end of the day, it's Frodo who's chosen as a more qualified ring bearer. So there are always going to be people who have our traits turned up to 10. Maybe they're smarter, funnier, or harder working. But that doesn't mean that you are less worthy of any tasks set in front of you or to be any less celebrated as a person. It's that weird thing about being a human that we have intrinsic value just by existing. We don't need to earn our value in any way. And that can be so, so, so hard to remember. By the way, Gollum's story makes an extreme version of the same point. Though he's the definition of a bad guy, and he doesn't seem to show any sign or desire of changing, he is still worth understanding and forgiveness. Okay, so we still have a little bit more story before the end of this chapter, but we're almost done. Using the what-can-I-do-in-the-time-I-have approach, Frodo decides that he should leave the Shire so he doesn't endanger his friends. Blissfully, he adds, I should like to save the Shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid or dull for words, and have felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there's a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. I love this thought of dullness and comfort, even though they're normally thought to be either useless or counterproductive, actually make it possible to be brave and easier to face our difficulties. Gandalf seems pleasantly surprised by Frodo's decision and agrees that it's best to leave the Shire. The first thing he does is give him the traveling pseudonym of Underhill, which I like to think he does because it's in light of all the trouble that Bilbo caused by using his real name while adventuring. He goes on to tell him to keep his departure quiet in case of mortar spies, and that it might be prudent to bring the traveling companion. Right on time, Sam Gamgee is caught eavesdropping beneath the bag-end window, and a laughing Gandalf 
seems to forget himself for a moment. We see this effortless feat of strength as he easily lifts Sam through the window. It's decided that Sam will accompany Frodo away from the Shire, though to where yet, nobody knows. All that matters to Sam is that he'll get to see the elves. And with that, we've made it to the end of chapter two. What feels like the longest chapter ever already. There's a lot of story to cover and lots of nuggets from Gandalf. I really hope you found all of this to be affirming, calming, or at least something that sort of helped you unwind. The next chapter will be much shorter and have a lot more action than talking. Frodo, Pippin, and Sam will be walking to Frodo's new house across the Shire and navigating all the unexpected people who pop up along the way. Thank you again for listening. Thank you so much. I'll see you again in the next episode.